Hi, everyone. I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode three of the Yoga Land podcast. On today's episode, I talk to my one and only Jason Crandall. Those of you who know us know that Jason is my husband, and I hope this is the first of many podcasts we do together. For those of you who don't know us, let me give you a little background about Jason. Jason is an internationally celebrated vinyasa yoga teacher with an exceptional gift for transmitting the teachings of yoga in a down-to-earth relevant way. Jason was a contributing editor at Yoga Journal for many years and is a regular presenter at Yoga Journal conferences and other conferences around the world. Jason has a keen interest in teaching yoga teachers, and in addition to leading teacher trainings all over the world, Jason has two online teacher training modules available on yogaglow.com. Here's what I love and respect about him as a teacher. He's meticulous. He's also funny. And he's phenomenally talented at pacing and sequencing, which means when you leave his classes, you just feel like yoga has worked. It's magic. I might be a little biased. In this episode, Jason and I talk mainly about the art of yoga teaching. So if you're a teacher or if you just like to geek out about the art of yoga, this is the perfect episode for you. We address this term that we've been hearing a lot lately, which is yoga liberty. And I'm doing air quotes as I say that. So we talk about what that term means and what we, how we feel about it. And um, Jason also talks about how to deal with the challenges of being a teacher. And he offers some tips for navigating those challenges. So thanks for joining us. And uh, without further ado, here's the interview with Jason. So today we're going to talk about what it takes to be a yoga teacher and kind of the myths that have been developed around being a traveling yoga teacher. And as you have been talking about the myths around this kind of yoga lifestyle that we see on social media these days. Yeah. What do you think about this whole concept of being a yoga liberty? Well, you know, from our conversations that I find the idea of being a yoga liberty or that there is such a thing as a yoga liberty is totally laughable. And this is a point, this has been a little bit of a point of our, I don't want to say contention, but disagreement for us, because for me, when I think of celebrity, I wouldn't toss it around nearly as casually as it gets tossed around in the yoga context. And to me, when I think about celebrity or someone that is a celebrity, I think that Like there are many ways to define that, but for me, a celebrity is someone that is regularly recognized out of context. Mm. They're recognized at the department store. They're recognized driving down the street. They're recognized at the coffee shop. On an airplane. On an airplane. Yeah. And if I'm honest, that has happened a couple of times in my life, but it doesn't happen frequently. And I know a lot of really well yoga teachers that, well-known yoga teachers that If we're at a yoga studio, people will recognize us. If we're teaching at a conference, people will recognize us. In any other context, I just don't think that the celebrity level in the yoga discipline rises to the occasion of something to be called celebrity. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason that I think that this is important is because I think that so much of people's happiness comes down to perception and expectation. And if they perceive that they are going to be treated like royalty or they're going to be 
recognize when they swan into some random restaurants. I just feel like it sets people up for for not understanding the reality of what their job is likely to be like. And I don't want to see people disappointed because they thought that they would get a certain amount of adoration or luxury or fame that I just don't see happening in this particular discipline or or a group of uh, educators. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because it totally calls to mind for me this Gore Vidal quote, and I hope I'm getting this right, but I'm literally just doing this from memory, which is, he said, being a famous writer is like being a famous ceramicist. Like, right. in other words, nobody really cares except the other ceramicists. Yeah. In, in- and I think I'm so that so there's that. But I think I think the other thing about it, there's a there's a few things about it that bother me. I mean, I actually really don't like the term very much. I think the first thing that I don't like about it is that it implies that the people who are well known in the yoga world right now have tried to be celebrities. Yeah, right. right, (laughs) right, That's the aim, which the people who I know who are well known in the yoga community that's not the case. It's come from many years of hard work and many years of training and many years of studying. So there's that aspect. And then I think the other aspect, which you're kind of touching on, is this perception that when you get to a certain level of teaching, everything sort of gets cushy right, and right, easy right, right, right. and luxurious. Right. So, I mean, I think that's something that you can speak to. Yeah, I think that this is something that we'll circle back to in a few times. You know, I'll be the first person to say that I I remember when I was 20 years ago when I first met my primary teacher, Rodney Yee. And I remember, you know, being young and being quite honestly poor and not having a clear job direction. And I remember seeing Rodney as being someone who had it made. You know, he was so well known and he was, he was on Oprah. He was on, he was an exceptionally well-known yoga teacher and still is. And I didn't realize then that his life was not easier than mine. And I didn't realize then that his life was actually a lot, probably harder than mine. More complicated. More complicated. More complicated. More complicated. So I had very much black and white financial stresses and I had the existential stresses of, who am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? Will I make it? Will people like me? So forth and Will so I on. Will I still keep living in the apartment where the mice are like controlling the remote yeah, control? Yeah, the mice are in the mice. <laughs> right. I mean, that is, that's, yeah, that's nothing that's, to, right. to, to so, sniff at. So yeah. Not at all. But I did have this illusion that because he was a very well-known yoga teacher, and this was also in the era that there weren't many other well-known yoga teachers. Now there are many, many, many well-known yoga teachers. So I had the illusion that he had sort of a cushier life because he had a greater degree of commercial success. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that, you know, now that I have a greater degree of commercial success, trust me, I appreciate it. But I also see now that the lifestyle that goes with commercial success is not all leisure and luxury. It's a ton of additional hard work. I think as modern yoga teachers, we have often bought into this idea of once I become more commercially successful in social media, that I'm going to have a lot more time and money on my hands. And you might have more money on your hands, but you're surely not going to have more time on your hands. 
kids. Right. You know, and so I actually think it's a pernicious idea that when you become, as a yoga teacher, if you become more commercially successful, all of a sudden you have all this time and space and freedom and luxury. And I just, you know, I do well in this business in so many different ways, but I work harder, longer hours than I ever used to as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want to go back to one thing you said, which is that the concept of the yoga lifestyle isn't actually necessarily a yoga lifestyle. It's a luxury lifestyle. Is, is part of what bothers you, because I guess it's part of what bothers me, this idea that if you do yoga or you want to do yoga to just be blissful all the time and to just have this easy lifestyle. And, and when you become a famous teacher, it gets even easier because you're traveling to exotic locales. Like to me, what sort of makes me sad about that is that when I came to yoga, it was not for any of those reasons. It was because I needed help, like living my right, life. Right, right, right. You know, I needed to feel like I wasn't crazy for struggling and for comparing myself to others. And I needed like to feel more connected to others, not as though I was comparing myself to some unattainable perception. Right, right. So, okay, so let's go back to media and make it really clear that neither of us are in any way bashing social media. I think that we're just, like, I will say for me, I enjoy all sorts of media. I enjoy television. And if I watch a cheesy comedy, I don't sit there and think, oh, you know, you know, this media is projecting all these things. This comedy is not real. Real life is not actually like this like, you know, friends or whatever, like who lives that life? Like, that's not my media analysis. I understand that that's the nature of that medium, that it is entertainment. And I don't see that it is entertainment's job to give a fully vetted, thoroughly accurate rendition of life. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing to me when it comes to social media is that you know, looking at Instagram, looking at Facebook and, and any of the social content, I don't expect it to be something that it's not. It's a visual medium. Beautiful things and beautiful places are going to be more enticing than not. Mm-hmm. And that isn't a fault of social media and it's not even a fault of us, but it's to say, I can't watch Friends, which ironically I don't watch, but <laughs> I can't watch Seinfeld and think like, oh, my life is supposed to be like that, uh-huh. right? But I do somehow feel like with modern social media, we have internalized in the yoga community that we should be able to do the really hard backbends in a really beautiful place and that we should have the time and the freedom to have the perfect body and do the perfect thing. And so it's not that I have a fault with social media. My concern is that sometimes as a community, we may, we may think that social media is a more accurate reflection of, a, of an actual life than it is. Mm-hmm. It's not a reflection of an actual life. It's a very cut, slice, dice, and let's face it, orchestrated, produced reflection of someone's life it's Mm. just like any other media and so it's not to bash it or it's not to bash those of us that engage with it but it's to say as consumers of this media we can't expect our lives to be a reflection 
of this thing that is this curated and only partially real phenomenon anyways. Right, right. And I do get the sense, both from the type of questions that students ask me, especially in my teacher training programs, that there is some expectation, there is some desire for people to do bigger, more difficult, more beautiful things, and also to be living a life that looks like this life that people have seen and internalized in social media. And it's just not... So can you give me an example? Like, Because I'm, I'm not sure if you're saying that your teacher trainees get pressured by their students to teach them harder poses. What kind, like, give me an example. Okay, so I'm going to step back. This is sort of hard to talk in abstraction. But I think that the bottom line is a lot of the teachers that I train who are in their first many years of teaching are realizing how hard this job is, Mm -hmm. how limited the income is, Mm -hmm. and they're running from place to place to place to place to book hours to teach. And they didn't know that it was going to be as hard as it actually is. And so they're looking for an out. It's a hustle, right? They're, they realize it's a hustle. And so they're looking to an end line. Mm-hmm. They're looking to a finish line where all of a sudden, all of that hard work and the hustle and bustle and going from here to there, from here to there stops. Mm-hmm. And they get to experience a little bit more of that space and that luxury Mm -hmm. in that ease of life. Mm -hmm. I think that you can be a modern, more bohemian, depending on what your lifestyle requires. You can be a more bohemian lifestyle and be a yoga teacher without a doubt. But if you... If you don't have two princesses to take care of. Yes, yes. (laughs) But if you live in an expensive place and, and, you know, you're... You have a family. You have a family, or even if you don't. Because if you don't live in an expensive place, it's largely largely relative. But if you're taking care of a family or you're, you know, if you're a single parent... Or if you have student loans. If you have student loans, Mm -hmm. if you have any type of debt, Mm -hmm. you are probably working harder and getting more mentally and emotionally and spiritually drained than you anticipated. The questions that I get are, when does all this difficult work stop? Mm-hmm. And when do I get to like be in headstand on the paddleboard? I don't want to be dark. I don't want to be cynical. But I do want to make it clear that, that it, this continues to be a lot of hard work. And where I think that the, the idea of a yoga celebrity or the yoga lifestyle, where I think that this becomes damaging is the wrong word, but where I think it becomes problematic is the vast, I don't know anyone's life who correlates directly to those experiences. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when, when teachers are in those first several years working really, really hard and they think, oh my gosh, I should be at a different place so that my life is easier. I just think that that's a, I think that that's a mistake, that that's an illusion, that, that this continues to be a very, I don't want to say hard job, but it continues to be a very demanding job that you have to have a high degree of passion and drive and ambition in order to keep your head above water. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing you've talked about is 
it's not just problematic because people feel like there's an end point where it's going to get easier, but it's problematic because they feel as though they're failing. They feel as though they're failing and they feel like everyone else that they see has it easier and is doing better. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the ultimate keeping up with the Joneses. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the ultimate keeping up with Joneses. And, you know, I don't want to say that I have a difficult life, but I don't have an easy one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be on an airplane most weekends, like before I knew what it felt like to travel 40 weeks of the year, I thought it sounded really great and really glamorous and really fun. And there are major upsides to it. But now after, you know, 10 years of it, it's really hard. So then the nature of the hustle has just shifted. It's business travel. It's business travel. So I guess, you know, the question that comes to mind for me is, well, first of all, how can yoga teachers, especially in a teacher training room, how can yoga teachers kind of (laughs) dispel this myth? And then how can we support up and coming teachers who are in this phase of such an intense hustle? Like, what do you recommend to them? I I keep coming back to this idea of, of how intertangled happiness, contentment, and expectation are. Mm. You know, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from a working class family. I believe in hard work. I'm not trying to get away from hard work. And I'm not trying to steer a teacher away from hard work. I'm trying to say that this job is hard work and that's what it is. And you're not going to get away from that. So if you have a passion to teach and you have a passion to help others and you have a passion to educate and you have a passion for yoga and you understand and accept that this is a demanding job, then it is an excellent job. So to me, that first thing to do is to dispel this I don't know how conscious it is dispel this conscious or unconscious notion that you can make like a really good living teaching yoga in an easeful, casual, luxury, relaxed, spacious kind of way. Right. There's no four hour work week. There's no four hour not work the week. Fair. Four hour not, work week. not yet. Not yet. <laughs> So, I mean, I do have some some um, some ideas that I'll give you in terms of being a more efficient worker, because I think we want to give our audience some takeaways. But, sure. I, but I, I just keep coming back to, you know, let me say this. I feel like so many of us start teaching yoga because we love practicing yoga. We love the experience of practicing yoga and we love the experience of being in the yoga room. and We love what that does for us. And it's a sanctuary for us. And it's that, it's that healing place. And it's the only place in our lives where we feel whole and content or it's the first place. And so we think to ourselves, oh, I want to teach this. And we don't understand that the reality of practicing yoga and teaching yoga are very different realities. And this sort of example I, I give is I can't imagine that drinking wine is the same as running a wine shop. You know, like drinking wine and and running a restaurant where you're selling wine mm-hmm. is a different experience. Mm-hmm. We just have to know this is the most important. I really do think that this is the most important thing is to just expect that this is a more demanding and emotionally layered vocation than we had anticipated. And if we anticipate that this is a lot of hard work, then good. What isn't hard work? 
You know what I mean? So to me, it's, it's just getting expectation and reality in line and doing away with this idea of, you know, fame and celebrity and a cush life. Right. And it be, yeah. So I, I will add to that. The hard thing is I don't think you know this until you start teaching in a sense, because I taught part-time for a couple of years and I was shocked by how different it was from being in a yoga class. I remember teaching my first class and I could not believe that I had to talk for an hour and a half. Uh-huh. Now I'm doing the correct job. I'm, I'm a reporter and a writer and mostly an introvert. And that much energy output was phenomenally draining Definitely. and overwhelming yeah. and intimidating. So I learned that through, through teaching part-time. So I think the other aspect is along with expectation is where do you find personally the reward in being a teacher, right? So what I think what you're trying to convey is the reward is not the cush lifestyle. The reward is not being a quote unquote yoga liberty. The reward isn't even flying to exotic locales, which you get to do, which we've done together, which has been amazing. Totally. The reward has to be. It actually has to be Dharma. Like on some true level, the reward has to be that this deeply fulfills you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I don't know another way to say it. I feel deeply fulfilled by the work that I do largely because I love the experience of teaching yoga. And, you know, I say this, I say this to people all the time and I never know how it sounds, but I don't teach yoga mainly for other people. I don't teach yoga mainly as a service. I hope that the yoga I teach is a service and I hope that it helps other people. But if I wanted a service job, I'd volunteer at a shelter. I mean, you know, for me, I teach yoga because I actually get a deep amount of fulfillment from the experience of teaching yoga. Mm -hmm. I am very happy that I have greater commercial success. I am very happy that there are certain small luxuries that I'm able to afford for myself and my family, but I get deeply fulfilled by this practice. I love it. And it's, it's both mentally and emotionally and intellectually still a fascinating subject matter for me. But I think you have to have, I don't want to say an unwavering, you have to have a strong implicit drive to do the nature of this work. Mm-hmm. Like you have to want to do the nature of this work. I think what's interesting about you and, you know, I think other teachers probably do get fulfillment from the service aspect of the job or from other aspects, but you have always wanted to be a teacher yeah. and you are a very natural teacher. And, you know, you, you know, we joke about like you not talking to me in your yoga teacher voice, like you, you are just naturally wanting to teach all the time. And, you know, and so that's an important aspect, like you said, of why it works for you yeah. and your personality type. Yeah, yeah. for sure. had some other ideas i want to make it clear that i don't think teaching yoga is a slog 
I don't think that teaching yoga lacks an incredible amount of personal and spiritual reward. It, it obviously does. But getting back, and then I'll, I'll move through it, hitting this point again, that as yoga teachers, we, we have to know that this is a very challenging job. And from my experience 20 years in now, it stays a very challenging job. It, didn't, it hasn't gotten easier. It's gotten, in a lot of ways, more demanding. But I think that one of the things that most teachers struggle with, is, and I know that I struggled with this for a long period of time, it's not just early on, it's not just that you work hard, it's that you work in a very inefficient workplace. And by that, what I mean is, Okay, let's say you are someone that's teaching 20 classes a week, 15, 20 classes a week. Like that's a lot of classes a week, 15, 20 classes a week. But if those are 90-minute classes or if those are 60-minute classes, you're still not working 40 hours. You're not, not actually teaching 40 hours of work. The teaching time, yeah. The teaching time, mm -hmm. okay? But early on in a career, a lot of your time is teaching time. Yes. Like for me, a lot of my time is not teaching time. It's running all other aspects of my business. Yes. But early on, it's teaching time. But the challenge of the teaching time is that it's usually really spread out in inefficient ways. So, like, you teach Monday morning at 7.15 at Studio A. And then, you know, you teach at 11.10 at Studio B, which is not near Studio A. And then you teach again at 3 p.m. back at Studio A. And then you have you know, a 7.30 p.m. job, a 7.30 p.m. class to teach. So you haven't worked for 12 hours, but you've had a 12-hour workday. And I know for me that if I have another class to teach on that day, I'm still, I'm still thinking about that class. I'm not, the day's not over. You know, if it's noon and I have a 6 p.m. class, my day's not over. Emotionally, internally, it's not over. Sure. And so yoga teachers, it's not just that they're teaching 15 classes a week. It's that those 15 classes are so spread out. Yeah. And let's and those, face it, when you have to drive anywhere between place to place for a work event, it's stressful. It's totally stressful. It's totally stressful. Yeah. And you, know, you, almost, you almost never know what you're going to get paid, so forth and so on. And so one of the challenges just to acknowledge and start to work with is that it's not the number of hours, it's not the number of classes, it's the lack of consolidation. And right, it's that things are so spread out in terms of location and in terms of billable hours, hours that you're getting, getting compensated to teach. And so one of the first things that changed that for me professionally was when I found a single location where I could teach one public class and then for two hours after that public class, teach one-on-one -on -one sessions. I made a deal with that studio. I just sort of decided myself, mm -hmm. I need to teach fewer locations and I need to consolidate my hours, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. So that I don't have like an inefficient 90 minutes at some random cafe doing nothing but looking at my phone, okay? So I think that one thing that, that teachers want to be entrepreneurial about is figuring out ways to consolidate their location around, you know, maybe their most successful studio that they work at or a studio where before their class or after their class, they might have open space and then 
try to get a private or two in there. It's so a great that, idea. Right. Yeah. So that, mm-hmm. so that, you know, let's say, let's say even you only make $60 on a private or $70 or however much you make on a private, you know, maybe that's enough to get rid of the nighttime class on Thursday that, you know, your Thursday ends at 11 a.m. And until your next class is Thursday at 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. You don't want to teach that Thursday at 6 p.m. class. Like you need to be done with that class if it's not a hugely performing class. But you need to, most people need to make up that hour, right? And so they need to figure out like, where in my schedule can I be in one place for a longer period of time and replace that income? Mm-hmm. So for me, for so long, it was, in t- it still is mm-hmm. income replacement. If something is going to get pulled off the table, if a dollar amount is going to get pulled off the table, where is that going to be replaced? And if I don't see where that's going to replace, then I can't take that off the table yet until there's a replacement. And so getting more consolidation leads to greater efficiency. Do you have any um, ideas or recommendations for how long to give a studio or a class time a chance before you try to, if it's not working out before you try to find another, another class? I don't have anything offhand. That's a really good question. And I think at some point your gut tells you, and I, this is this is a good question you're asking because there's so many people in my training programs that essentially come up with the same thing. Mm-hmm. They have a class or two that they've been just grinding on. I mean, when you start out, you're given the worst class time. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it's really it's a really difficult situation. So to me, to me again, it's going back to that previous statement, which is that it's not it's not what class isn't working. Like if you have an obvious class that isn't working for you, it's one thing. But what are the classes that really hang out there as being super cumbersome and super inefficient, just pull you in too many directions. And then I think the bottom line answer is, you know, when you know, like as a yoga teacher, you know, at some point that a class is not working out or a studio's working out, not working out or a relationship's not working out. And the vast majority of yoga teachers that I, I know every yoga teacher I know is good spirited and they want to hang in and they're loyal and they want to make something work, especially because when you're a yoga teacher, you're putting, you're putting your heart and your soul into that 90 minutes. And so you want, so you are emotionally invested in that thing working out. But at some point, and I give this all the time, it's like a relationship. It's like, when you know that a relationship you know you're not going to marry this class, you know, (laughs) like when you know, like this class has to go, you got to let it go. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard. I mean, I say that, I say that to you and you know, for me and my schedule, that this is one of the hardest things that I I have to do. I have stayed committed to things for much longer than they are fruitful, fruitful. Mm -hmm. but you, at some point you have to let it go. And let me tell you that when you let it go, the moment you let it go, like the moment you no longer have to teach that like Saturday 3 p.m. class, man, you are stoked. <laughs> you are so psyched that you don't have to teach that crummy Saturday 3 p.m. time slot. And that is going to free you up in so many ways to do to do other things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What about um subbing? Is that a good way to become known in your community and get some better exposure and a better class time? 
I think it's the best way. Mm-hmm. I think it's the best way. I think that in so many ways, again, not, not to go back too far back in the social media uh, rabbit hole, but I find that so many modern teachers are spending so much time with social media trying to put their stamp on social media. And I still think that the best way for a teacher in their first couple years of developing classes and clientele has nothing to do with social media. It has to do with studio and and face-to-face relationships. Mm. It comes from word of mouth. Like in San Francisco, like when I go to a place that people don't know me, when I go to wherever, I rely on a broader profile that I have through Yoga Glow and social media and so forth. But my students here, my students in San Francisco, they didn't find me from social media. They found me because they went to a random class. I was the teacher of that class and they liked it and came back. Mm -hmm. So the best way to build a business for, for people in their first couple of years is to teach a lot, to sub a lot, to be a good host, to say, hey, my name is so-and-so, thanks for coming to class. And then also to not be afraid of having an email list. And after class is saying, you know, I'm subbing a lot at the studio lately, and if you want to be on my email list so you know the next time I'm subbing or when I have my next public class, let me know and, and register. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's to get that lead in person right it's still this to me i know it sounds weird but this unless you have a million followers in a social media or five hundred thousand followers in social media i don't really feel like you can really base your teaching existence on social media it's still it's still word of mouth it's still in person yeah. relationships and 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 like you said when you get someone to sign up for your mailing list you, you're like continuing a one-on-one connection right. which is as opposed to wondering if your announcement showed up in their Facebook feed, you know exactly. that at the very least it showed up in their inbox and they can open exactly. it or not. Exactly. There's just one more thing I want to say. I think that I would have benefited early on from having a mentor after my teacher training. Yeah. And um, it's something that you and I are talking about trying to develop more. And so I just wonder if you talk about that with your teacher trainees, like trying to find a mentor or trying to find a group of other teachers to talk to, just trying to build a network of support for yourself as a way to help you get through those early years of teaching. Yeah. You know, when I think back about my time, my early time as a student and an early time as a, as a teacher, I reflect at how fortunate I was to have access to a mentor, which was, which was Rodney. And it was never, it was that I was never like, will you be my mentor? It was just that I asked him for things. I asked him, can I, can I assist your classes? Mm -hmm. Can I go to this retreat with you? Can, you know, after Mm -hmm. lunch someday, can we have lunch? I want to talk about X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And just sort of as, as an aside, it's interesting when people at when people ask me for similar things. If someone asks me like, "Hey, I'd love to have coffee with you before class," I'm probably going to say no unless they say, "Hey, can I have coffee with you before class? I want to talk about X, Y, and Z." Mm-hmm. Like when people come to me with very specific questions, I make time. Mm-hmm. If it's like you want to have a, just a broad chit chat about life. 
I don't have much time in my schedule unless we have an existing relationship. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is I realized looking back how supported I was by having by having Rodney, but also by, it wasn't just Rodney, it was that I had a teacher that I resonated really well with, that I was able to model my practice and teaching style around. And I think that more younger teachers need this, even if not to get practical guidance, but if just to feel connected. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it was, it was a, it was a big it's not like a vanity thing, but in terms of early on having my relationship with him that I did and, and then the other teachers, Richard and so forth, I felt, and I still do, although there's a greater space between us, I felt connected. I felt connected to a, I don't want to say a lineage is a there, you know, it's a modern school, but, and this, this is one of the very important arguments for lineage. Yeah, that's true. Is that people feel connected to a lineage. It's not that they are beholden to the lineage necessarily, but that they are part of a continuum. And that continuum is like being part of a spine. It, it's not it like going to church. Yeah, you know, you have a community around you. So this is this is enough that I've been wanting to crack. I mean, you know that I've had a placeholder on my homepage for mentoring for a long time. Mm -hmm. I'm in the process of figuring out an online protocol, but you know, you know me well, and, and some of the people do, some people don't. When it comes to teaching a class, I'm, I'm always prepared, but I can show up and just bang it out. When it comes to teaching a training, when it comes to curriculum, when it comes to a structured program, I need months and months and months, if not years of development of that content and curriculum. Like it's a place that I am a Virgo weirdo professional or, or uh, no, it's, it's no, 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 it's, it's, yeah. no, no, no. I know it's positive, but it's, it's a place that I am a perfectionist about. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. once, once I have the mentoring, the, the distance mentoring thing down in a, in a way that works in my time frame, it'll, it will work. But yeah, I think that, People need to feel a connection. And theoretically, social media is a place where we can feel connected. And I think that a lot of people do feel connected. But I think the nature of how media works and what is sexy versus what is not sexy, I think that people end up feeling more disconnected than connected yeah. through visual through primarily visual mediums. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that you're basically talking about was true for me when I started teaching. I was also shocked by how lonely it was, right? As a new teacher, if you don't have a built-in community that you're constantly going back to, you're just flying solo and you're just kind of making guesses along the way. So we are working on this program. We're going to figure it out, We're gonna figure make it, it happen. We're gonna <laughs> we'll it let you know when it does. We'll figure it out. And then that will solve all of the yoga world's challenges. All of the world's, all of the because, world's problems. Because if yoga has taught me nothing else, it's taught me to take on the whole world of problems <laughs> and to support everything that exists on my shoulders and my shoulders alone. Well, that's really wise. <laughs> that's really wise of you. I'm so yeah. glad you could talk to us today. You're welcome. I love you. Likewise. <laughs> So there you have it, Inside the Mind of Jason Crandall. 
One thing that we'd like to do in future episodes is have Jason answer some of your questions. So if you have a question related to this episode about being a yoga teacher or about navigating the world of social media as a yoga teacher, you can tweet your question to at Yoga Land Podcast, and we may just answer it down the line. If you want to know when future episodes of the podcast go up, you can subscribe to our newsletter at jasonyoga.com. And if you want to look at show notes for this episode, you can go to yogalandpodcast.com slash episode three. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks to DJ Bhakti Styler for the music and to Daniel Schaefer for his sound and editing skills. Take care, you guys. Talk to you soon.